Welcome all to the Cinco de Mayo edition of Legal Tech Week. Uh, this is the show where we talk about the top stories of the week in legal tech innovation. I'm Bob Ambrogi. I uh, write the blog Law Sites and have the podcast Law Next and the Legal Tech Directory Law Next. And uh, our panelists today, uh, starting, uh, Jean, why don't you kick it off? Hi, I am uh, Gina Grady. I write the Dewey B Strategic blog, which covers um, legal re legal research, knowledge management, and every, anything else I care about. I'm also a columnist for Legal Tech Hub. And uh, Steve Embry. Hi, Steve Embry. I write the blog Tech Law Crossroads, which is about technology and legal innovation. And like Gene, anything else I want to write about. Something, you know, when you get a certain age, you, you can get, the, get away with that, right? Uh, but I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Um, Stephanie. Uh, hi there. Stephanie Wilkins, Editor-in-Chief of Legal Tech News at ALM. And, you know, kind of get away with some things, but TBD. <laughs> Joe Patrice. Uh, Joe Patrice from Above the Law and Thinking Like a Lawyer. Uh, I, for our Cinco de Mayo edition, I do have a margarita today as opposed to my usual whiskey. So, you know, I'm I'm in the spirits, down with the French, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. And Nikki. I am Nikki Black. I'm the SME and external education um, head at my case in LaPay. Parent company is Affinipay. And I write legal tech columns for ABA Journal Above the Law, Daily Record. And um, I'm just drinking sparkling water. I don't know. I guess I'm lame. That's okay. Mine's not even sparkling, but I have to go drive drive to a rubber chicken thing event tonight. So, and, and I would point out that this weekend is the Kentucky Derby weekend. So, in my part of the woods, everybody is drinking bourbon. Yeah, including the horses. <laughs> in my part of the woods, that's what they always drink. So there's no big change there. <laughs> not to mention the coronation, and I guess I. Caroline has already gone to her drinks party for the coronation. <laughs> I, I'm sure she is celebrating early. Yeah. Do we actually we didn't even hear from her this week? She didn't even uh, send her regrets this week. So yeah, she did. Big week. Did she? Yeah. I missed it. Oh, oh that's she right. Said, she did say she that. said she right. was. She joked about swearing her oath to the king. <laughs> okay, that's right. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, so um, probably the I guess the biggest news or, or uh, certainly one we all just about all of us covered, I think this week was the uh, launch or uh, as Jean referred to it, the non launch by uh, LexisNexis of its new Lexis plus AI. It's uh, it's uh, generative AI driven new sort of chatbot feature uh, that uh, uh, is uh, not fully launched at this point, putting it out to a, a limited uh, group of select law firms for them to uh, try out for a while. And with the uh, with the idea that it may be coming out by the end of the summer, I think they said they're pretty sure it'll be out by the end of the summer. Uh, but Virginia, you you uh, you wrote about this. What did what did you think? Well, I mean, 
as you know, I, as I've been telling <laughs> lots of people at my law firm, AI has been embedded in legal research products for a long time. I mean, Lexis answers, Westlaw answers. There's lots of things that we're already doing AI, and that's why it was sort of shocking to me how much the legal marketplace was recoiling from the notion of AI. Um, and I know ChatGDP, Open ChatGDP, got a lot of bad press for legitimate reasons. So I thought it was interesting that Lexus seems to be what their big announcement was to me was yes they're developing this this product, but they have a huge installed base already. So probably they are the biggest I think the biggest legal research provider in terms of how many law firms are they in, how pervasive are they in the marketplace, and they're bringing AI to the desktop. But they're not just doing that. They created that other educating the marketplace thing where it's not just the people who are going to be uh, part of the test group. They have the um, it's like a special Lexus AI insider where they're going to give sneak previews, exclusive access. And they said that is open to anybody. And I think that is an educate the marketplace and push back on all of the ethical concerns that that some law, law firms and in fact law schools because i have repeatedly seen stories about law schools saying we don't want or we're not going to let our students touch any uh, uh generative ai product so i think it was a very interesting approach to start with an educational campaign before you launch the product you're giving them the benefit of the doubt there. I think. I mean, I, I feel like that was just a uh, more of a, a marketing ploy in a, in a way of kind of you know whitewashing the fact that they're putting oh, this product there out there when watch. they didn't have anything to put out there yet. <laughs> um, and I mean, they did have something to put out there. That's not fair to say because obviously they, there there is something there. But um, you know, I, you, I did kind of feel like they were really just trying to get a, a, a jump on the competition in terms of getting something out there that they're doing this. You know, they, they've got co-counsel out there, they've got Harvey out there um, and, uh, you know, co-counsel for a little bit kind of had this space to itself a, a bit, mm -hmm. it seemed like. And and so I think they were maybe worried about that a little bit. And and by creating this, what are they, what are they called? The AI Insider <laughs> Program, it's like, Give us your email and we'll send you updates is really what it comes down to. But. Yeah, well, Bob, you, you may remember a few years ago, I think you and I and maybe some other people here went to a Thomson Reuters presentation in maybe Minneapolis. And I don't remember what the product was, but it, it was within the next week, LexisNexis came out with their version of what the product was. And again, it felt very rushed. <laughs> so, I but think I, can't that was West, I think that was Westlaw Edge. And I think I we think were you're in right, New York. Yeah. I think we were in New yeah. York. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. I remember it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. But what's interesting to counterpoint is that Westlaw launched Precision, which does not uh, use generative AI, and they have kept completely silent in terms of what their plans are. And that's yeah. what well, I did. I did mention in my story. They're going to. Yeah, go so ahead, Stephanie. They, they did release that one. They released a survey. It felt the same way to me where they haven't announced anything about it in their tools, but they did release, you know, a survey of use of generative AI in, in lot. And it felt sort of the same of like, we're going to put something out there to just, you know, have our name along with it. That had the same feeling to me as sort of yeah. the guide that Lexus put out. Yeah, Let me just they did say this week. Just, 
Just just on a point on that point of Top Stories did this week say that they're investing $100 million a year in generative AI and that they're going to be releasing generative AI into all of their flagship products by the second half of this year. So they did say that much. Well, then I want to just do a quick um, timeline, pull back and do a timeline check here because what is happening with AI is that this adoption rate and the it's if this is there's this exponential level of tech adoption and, and um tech improvement right like we're talking about this like it's been around for two years you know like oh well law school like the law schools are already changing their position in a matter of months i mean everything that is happening now is condensed into such a short time frame um and we're we're talking about like this has been around for a long time but it hasn't i mean this is like months that we're talking about where all these things have happened and all these products have rolled out. And what Lexus has, even though they're rolling it out just to this select group of firms, looks pretty robust. And I have no doubt that it is because of anybody that has all that data um, and all the years I've been writing about AI, they're the ones that have been doing the most interesting stuff, making the most interesting acquisitions, doing the most interesting things with those acquisitions, consistently building on them rather than just dropping them because it was too complicated for them to figure out or I mean, they're doing really wonderful things. And then the other thing I want to point out, I talked to this to Bob about this um, when we recorded his podcast. I don't think it's been released yet, but when I was Monday, a guest. Monday. Okay. Up Monday. One thing that is super interesting to me that I hadn't really thought through until he and I were talking about it was I believe that the pandemic has primed the legal profession and the and the general population to adopt and be um, willing to try new technology in a way that would not have happened. I think that AI still would have come to fruition where it is now, because that was just the tech coming together. The pandemic changed the mindset of the general populace, if you will, including the legal profession, um, such that everyone not only is less skeptical, they're willing to embrace it because they understand how tech truly did help them get through the pandemic and that it actually is useful and maybe we shouldn't be so scared about it. So I think that is also help ex- assisting in this acceleration, but the law schools are already changing their, they went for about a month. No, no, we're not going to do this. Let's put some things out. Now they're suddenly starting to figure out policies and put things in place and start implementing implementing and teaching about it. And I think you're seeing that across the board. I think that this is going to move so fast that by the time August comes, it's going to feel like this has been around for two years instead of just not less than a year. And they're going to have a both. I have no doubt that this is going to be a good pro, uh, product. Yeah, I agree. And I think that shows what a big deal this AI stuff really is, because I totally agree with you. Lexus has been doing great things with AI for years and recently, and they didn't have to, you know, slap any GPT label on it or whatever, but it just seems like it's such a, it's clearly the hotness right now. So they felt compelled to do that. And I mean, it doesn't change that the fact that they've been doing great things in the past. So I totally agree with you. What did you make, Stephanie, of the fact that they, uh, I think you were, you were the one who asked them at the press briefing earlier this week about the, what models they're using. And their answer was, uh, you know, several of them. I'm, uh, I'm always mean, the one that asked that question at the press yeah, well, briefing. I mean, that was a good question. Uh, and I mean, I think we're, uh, so many of us are kind of just assuming they're using GPT or something. And they said, yeah. well, you know, some of it GTP 3.5, some of it 4, and some other vendors' models. And somebody I talked to said, is that is that a way of, saving money on their part because it's really expensive to use GPT-4 and some of the other ones are less expensive. Uh, I mean, do you think that's a an actual product feature or is that a, a way of, of LexisNexis cutting back on the cost of this? 
I mean, I can't, I can't answer for them, obviously, but I mean, there is value. I've talked to other people too. There is value to, you know, using different models and having a model agnostic approach. And there are certain tasks for which you don't need, you know, the horsepower of GPT-4. It's kind of overkill. So, I mean, it could be that. It could be, you know, there's proprietary stuff. It could be they don't really want to let people know yet because this is there it is just a rollout and it is kind of like this competition and i mean look if the whole thing was run on gpt4 clearly that would have been a very clear answer so it's clearly not and the reasoning i don't want to i don't want to assign reasoning to them whether it could go either way kind of is my answer yeah i guess and i would i would just sort of in response to, to nikki's comment which i hope is absolutely correct it's just that you know, I've, I've been accepting change in the legal profession for a long time, and, and it never seems to really happen. And, you know, query whether this will be the thing that changes. I think the law school and the, and the people coming out of law school will be adopters. I just don't know if law firm and law firm management is going to embrace tools that increase efficiency, reduce billable hours, and tamper with their leverage model that as much as this has the potential time. to do. I think they're going to have to. I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen. I, I, I'm not a betting person. I would 100% put money down on this and I would put a significant amount. I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen quickly. I think the fact that Lexus has already put a, has a workable product that's out there, that the mid-sized firms are working with a bunch of them, and the fact that it's built into this thing everyone else is already using with these guarantees. The other thing that was notable, I thought, was that A, they're only pulling on their data, which is trustworthy data, and that the confidentiality issue is solved, I think, at least within the context of um, Lexis, because they're doing the exact same things with um, the inquiries and storing them you know, in a safe offsite versus you know, the public cloud or something that they do with everything else. And so they solve those problems. It's already built into tools everyone's using. And the, 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 the Productivity and the benefits are so evident and everyone's going to just feel they're going to use it, whether the firms say they should or shouldn't. And so I think that it's just going to, I think it's a losing battle. And I think this is different than anything else we've seen other than the internet and, and you know, or, or PCs, but this is like a whole different thing than anything else. And I don't Look, disagree I don't wanna... with you there. I just, I just, I'm just skeptical that the majority of law firm management is going to let this change happen as quickly as, as the technology would allow it to. I don't think they're going to have unless, a we'll unless, talk about that unless of course, unless of course the clients <clears throat> charge in and and demand it, which right. is always the and and you know in in past the, the demand for greater efficiency, while existing certainly to some extent, has not has not existed to the extent that you think that it might. Well, and I think Carolyn talked about that, and I'll I'll rebut that when I talk about what I submitted as a thing to talk about. <laughs> I just want to point and again, out. It, it, it depends upon the type of firm you're talking about, obviously. I mean, big law is different than solo is different than mid-size is different than plaintiff's firms. And I mean, I would think plaintiff's firms would say, God, thank God for a tool like this, right? I mean, they're not getting paid, but they are. So anyway, I interrupted you twice, Jean, and I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I just want to point out that Mary Mary Warner's post talks about stochastic parrots and synthetic media. I want to thank her for that. I I have to go look up what stochastic parrot look means. Yep, that's good. Joe, were so, you trying to like, say? Look, yeah, no, um, I don't want to discount the pandemic's role in getting people more eager to use things. But what 
I think, and what my angle and my write-up really dealt with is, I actually think that the big deal is chat chat GPT is the real driver here. It is a thing that allows you to do the stupid stuff. Nobody really cares or would have cared about utilizing this for any kind of serious application. People are excited about it because they can make it write stupid poems. I mean, that's the entry level. And that is a, and like, it seems like that's a little uh, specious, but it really is true that that's the that's the adoption play, right? You see that it can do this fun stuff that you do. And then you think, oh, well, maybe it does the real thing, which I actually thought one of the most entertaining parts of the presentation we saw is that Lexis put front and center the right of cease and desist letter for me. Okay. Now make it more aggressive. And I was like, yeah, like that's the part that's going to be fun. That's the part that somebody's going to actually use. Uh, and then by playing around with it, by and maybe they never send it, but try to get it to do mean things. And them doing that is what's going to lead to that kind of adoption play and potentially be the, and I think the play for the law firm management is they're going to replace tons of like staff with this sort of stuff, right? Like a lot of that work. Yeah, on the non-billable the... side, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not on, like a lot of tech. I mean, law firms have always been quick to adopt tech that helps their their billing procedures or their profitability. Now, they never have a lawyers have no problem with that. When you say, "Okay, I'm going to give you something that reduces hours," well, oh, it's a good confidentiality and privacy, and and oh my goodness, oh my god, it'll never work, and it'll get bad answers, and it'll be screwed, and we're going to sue by malpractice, and our carriers won't care, and and the clients won't like it, and and I tried it, and it gave me a stupid answer. <laughs> well, believe it or not, this is not the only GPT-related uh, topic we have to talk about today. But but I, one, one question I just want to ask people before we leave the Lexus one is, uh, was anybody bothered by the fact or suspicious of the fact that they didn't give any of us access to try out the product? I mean, it, it you know, again, it, it's generally when Thomson Reuters puts out a new version of Westlaw or whatever else, they immediately give us all passwords to try it out. And uh None of, none of that here. It's a very controlled uh, media event. We 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 got you know we got to see Jeff Pfeiffer doing a couple of presentations, which were clearly you know uh, planned out in advance. Uh, and uh, you know I always I was I'm always curious I'm always a little suspicious when when that's the case. I don't know what I'm suspicious of exactly, but but that maybe it's not quite ready for prime time. Well. Exactly. Like clearly, if they gave it to us, something could have gone majorly wrong and they didn't want us writing about it. Yeah. And that's okay. I'll give them time to perfect it. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, um, so uh, to Nikki's point, Nikki, you, I mean, you were alluding to the fact that uh, your, your story choice this week uh, kind of followed up on a little bit of, of what we've, we've been talking about here. So why don't you, uh, why don't you uh, go to that? All right. Well, so my co-author and good friend, Carolyn Elephant published a post on her blog, uh, My Shingle, and I'll pop it into the chat. Um, And I thought that it was very um, prescient, prescient, I never get that word right. Um, But Caroline does a great job of um, seeing the big picture and and seeing where things are going. And even though she focuses on the solo small space, um, I thought that her article was super, on point. What she was saying was that the will the AI be the end of the bill of law? The first thing that caught my eye was that she talked about Chegg, which is this company that provides study materials and outlines for high school and college students. Um, and that the stock prices had plunged by almost 48%, and they were considering bankruptcy because Chat GPT 
in the short time that it has been out, completely undermine their entire business model. We're talking, and I don't think you can count the first month of ChatGPT. So we're talking like five months, four months. This company's entire business model is gone because ChatGPT has replaced it. And so I, what she did, and this is what I love about Carolyn, is she often finds some sort of um, article about something that's unrelated to legal and ties it in in a really interesting way. And what she said, and I actually am going to read a few of the things that she said because I think they're so on point. She said that perhaps AI is going to be the biggest disruptor in legal that actually ends the billable hour. And I think that these examples that she gave were great. And I think that they're going to be these drivers that are going to cause the entire legal profession to kind of become upended. And it's going to change the way we do a lot of things. So what she said was that when, it, and I'm going to read like a few paragraphs. When a tool like Case Tech's co-counsel can summarize the 50 cases cited in an opposing brief in 10 minutes, rather than the 10 hours it might have taken an attorney, how do you build for that? When a lawyer can push a button to generate discovery requests that respond to a complaint that an, a complaint that an associate supplements with two hours of review, rather than the two days the project might have taken, how do you build for that? And if in-house counsel can use AI-powered tools, how much use will they continue to have for large outside firms? Consumer clients will soon grow savvy too. They'll be able to figure out that all those hours charged for depo prep in a family law case could have been accomplished in an hour with AI or that the canned chat GPT generated email didn't take an hour to draft. Flat fees for the deliverable, not the process, um, so that they're less vulnerable to the other billable hour in the AI age issues. So essentially, those were some great examples across the board in so many different ways that this is going to be the driver for having to change your entire pricing scenario, the driver to having to retain, bring in clients and retain them. You can't screw them over with this point three to read a letter like or an email. What are you talking about? Summarize with ChatGPT in two seconds and then respond to me with ChatGPT. You know, so I think that what she says is correct. And I wholeheartedly think this is going to change the practice of law as we know it. And people can drag their feet. And if they drag their feet, they're going to lose the race. I mean, I, I, I think she makes a really good argument for that. And I, I, it does seem like this is more likely to do that than in the past. You know, on the other hand, I'm just like, you know, if, if I had a, a billable hours worth of dollars for every time uh, somebody has said this marks the end of the billable hours <laughs> legal, uh, I would indeed be a very wealthy man by now because I've been hearing this for a long time. And it's, I mean, people said the same thing, you know, when e-discovery technology made a big leap ahead with sort of technology assisted review and AI and e-discovery. And everybody said, well, you know, that, that it's going to upend how we can bill around e-discovery or even electronic legal research. People said, you know, that's going to just upend how we, how we can, how we can charge for our time. I mean, this does seem yeah. to be, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of that in terms of the, the potential impact. So I, I agree with it. But at the same time, I feel like it's, it's still going to be a while. <laughs> well, I mean, and, you know, a large part of the problem is particularly in large law firms. And I think she makes a good point about the opportunity for small firms and solo shops to take advantage of these tools. But larger law firms, their entire culture is built upon the billable hour. Your advancement in the firm is built upon billable hour. Your compensation as a partner is in large part built based upon billable hours or the business as reflected by the number of hours on the matter. And so when you start talking to law firms, well, let's do an alternative fee. Their first thing is, how many hours is that going to take me to get the job done? And then 
and I'm you know ten percent on top of that, so I'll make a little money. Well, <laughs> uh, and which you know is is not exactly the right way to calculate, you know, what it's going to cost you as a firm to do a job, as opposed to what you're going to bill for. So it's it it could be a game changer. I, I I wonder about the speed that it the, the ripple effect that it's going to take throughout the system, particularly where you you don't have in-house counsel demanding it. And you make a good point. Yes, in-house counsel could say, "I'm not going to let you get away with charging 0.3 to do something Chat GPT." And on the other hand, you question a lawyer, "What was the 3.34?" Well, it was you know, I mean, you you got to verify what Chat GPT tells you, and, and you know, I. I'd really need to read it because it could be wrong. And then I had to check on it and so on. And so, so there's a lot of ways to drag your feet. And I know you're shaking your head, Nikki, and you're not, you, we rarely months, disagree. In three <laughs> yeah. months, that's not going to be an issue. This is this. I, I did like a, ch a chart for a presentation I created about how I used adoption rates. I think I talked about this last time, like how long it took ChatGPT to have hundred million compared to reach hundred million compared to like Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And when you look at Moore's law before ChatGPT even came along, all the data on Moore's law is showing that the, the first decade of 2010, second decade, third decade, now we just start to go off the charts. We are in that off the charts territory where what's the issues now are not gonna be issues in two months. I mean, this is happening so fast that these they're going to start fixing whether actually in chat GPT or with Lexus coming out with it and other companies where you can trust the output and those hallucinations are significantly reduced. That's not even going to be an issue. So they may want to use that as a, they're going to hang their hat on now, but it's not going to be something available in two or three months, I would argue. I mean, this is a whole different thing. I agree that this has a much bigger chance of impacting this than anything else ever had. I think Steve hit on an interesting point, though, that in terms of making the change, lawyers need to figure out a different way to value legal work because the available hours being great. Like you said, even when you do AFAs or flat fees, you, you go back and somehow falsely base that on a number of hours and an hour is worth X. So what do we now program lawyers to use as their base unit for valuing legal work? Because it's going to have to be something else. And I don't know what it is. Well, whatever happened to value billing? I mean, that was something I got talked about a whole lot and kind of forgotten. But but what's 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 the value of what I'm delivering to my client versus the time I've spent on delivering it? Uh, and and that yeah, what's and what's the value to the firm, which is which is a, you know another completely different issue because most firms like most firms are based on revenue. I mean, and did you bring in a million dollar client? I would matter Steve whether on. your profit was X. It's you know we got a million dollars in billions. We can. Just I'm with Steve. I'm with Steve on the idea that the internal accounting issue is what's going to slow things up. Like it is very difficult for these firms to rework themselves to financially operate on anything but the billable hour. Uh, obviously, clients will do what they can. But uh, but yeah, I, I think that's going to be the holdup. I don't think there may be technical reasons they can move quicker. But that's got that's going to take a long time, I think. But that's going to allow the small firms and the midsize firms to take over the market, because I don't know if any of you have hired a lawyer, but I had to hire Maybe. a tax issue. And let me tell you, it was like a large firm in Rochester, mid-sized firm elsewhere, probably. But I got in a fight with a guy because I'm like, what if you have four people looking at the same document and charging me 0.7 every time? Why do all four of them? And I looked at it and read it in 0.2. So what are you talking about? Right. And he like took so, hundreds of dollars off my bill. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And they got to fix it. 
sure, but that's, that's not going to be. Yeah, they, like they, they, that's that exists, but the the top tier where the nobody gets fired for hiring crevasse group of people, uh, where they easily could get just as good a rep, rep, representation hiring somebody mid-sized, and they never do because they have to justify to a board and shareholders that they did the best. Uh, that's the model where I think it's not going to happen. And I understand that's not the whole legal market, but that is, you know, the dynamo at the center of the American legal market. And I think, I, I mean, Nikki, you make a great point. I mean, I, I've had occasion to use a lawyer. I've had friends that had occasion to try to hire a lawyer. And it's a nightmare. I mean, it is a royal nightmare to find a lawyer who will talk to you, who will understand your problem, who will respond, who will return phone calls, who doesn't want a $10,000 retainer to do a $2,000 matter. I mean, it, it it is to the point that it's 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 so frustrating that people just give up. And so there is that kind of opportunity for the right solo and small firm. But so many of them that I found and consistent with some of your all's experiences, they they just don't want to be lawyers. They want to, you know, do the easy stuff and charge a lot of money for it. Yeah, I think if anything was ever going to break the back of the uh, of the uh, hourly uh, billing, this this is it. But uh, it it's going to be a while still. I think the the uh, you know another another big issue. Uh, that I thought something that came up during the Lexus briefing is this issue of what data are you sending off to OpenAI or whatever else when you're using something like ChatGPT. Uh, and in Lexus's case, they said you're not. We've we've designed it so that your data, the individual users' usage, is is private to them, and nobody else has access to that. Um, but uh, but Stephanie, you you guys you wrote about a really interesting new product this week that is designed to address that specific problem. Yeah, LLM Shield is actually really cool. And I mean, I would say, I mean, I'll go so far as to say, any big tools like Lexus or a co-counsel, like they shouldn't be using ChatGPT. I mean, they should be using the underlying models and building exactly that. Right. that infrastructure so that it's not being sent anywhere. But as Joe was saying earlier, especially I think one of the most brilliant things OpenAI did was put ChatGPT in the hands of everybody and got open got generative AI to the masses. So people have been playing around with this and we've seen big issues where, you know, like Samsung, their proprietary code got out into the world because someone put it into ChatGPT. And so uh, this is from Wayne Chang. He's a serial tech entrepreneur. Um, he created LLM Shield where it, it sits inside your own system. And if you're on ChatGPT and it has it has built-in guide guidelines, one is very specifically legal. It's trained to identify things that might be attorney-client privilege or sensitive, like here, if you say here's a client agreement, and you can set it up so it pops up a warning to the person saying, This is sensitive. Do you really want to send it out? Or you could even send it to be like automatically block certain kinds of materials. Um to sort of dip that problem in the bud of, you know, bans on chat GPT are not going to work. I mean, you can say it, people are still going to access it. Just go to a different computer, go to go at home, you know, um, go on a different network. So this is designed for various industries, including legal to stop that information before it gets out of your system. And it doesn't even go to LLM shield either. They're like, we don't want it. We want to, it's a one way you download the stuff, we stop you. And then if you override our stuff, that's on you. I thought it was really interesting, especially because it was specifically tailored to identify legal, sensitive legal information. Yeah, so it's a Chrome extension at this point, right? And then, and yeah, then, is that you said? yeah, it sounds really cool. Yeah, it, it really is. And it really, and I saw someone comment that it, 
it has the potential to, you know, really enhance some legal use cases because if people don't have the money to pay for the big tools and, you know, if they can put this in, I mean, this isn't free, but it's far less expensive than some of the major, you know, generative AI tools out there. It could help you sort of play around with ChatGPT in a legal setting without the concerns that the general tool presents. Um, so it's really interesting. Like I thought, I, I mean, I was fascinated by it. And Wayne Chang is a fascinating person to talk to also. So, yeah. Well, okay. So then the other thing um, that uh, besides ChatGPT bringing an end to the uh, billable hour, uh, we've also heard that uh, GPT and generative AI could help uh, address the access to justice issue in this country. Uh, and uh, Steve, you've got uh, perhaps a contrary view to that position. <laughs> Well, it was, you know, there was an article that Hassan Kanu wrote for Reuters in which he, he, he uh, posed the, the question whether it will help the access to justice gap at all. And, you know, he in that he cited the, the expense of these programs, the difficulty of um, access to the, to the Internet to be able to use them, um, the language barrier. And let's face it, the, the, the fact that whatever you want to do in the legal system, you still have to have a lawyer to do it, whether you ask chat GPT how to do it or or anything else. If you want to do it, you have to ask a lawyer to do it. So you're right back to where we started from. And, I, you know, it, he he also talked about the fact that, you know, all of these AI programs, all of this technology for years has, has forecasted to be uh, great solve the a2j problem and in point of fact it hasn't hardly moved the needle one iota i mean it's it's the gap is still what it always was and i mean the, the truth of the matter is that that our legal system in this country is is really for for big businesses trying to sue each other or for rich people or the isolated case of somebody with a horrific personal injury who gets the attention of the lawyer everybody else you're on your own and i don't I, I think I tend to agree with him. And I mean, there's, there's, it's an entirely unregulated area. Companies can charge whatever the market will bear, which they probably will do. And yes, there are some of the companies, particularly case text, who's saying, yes, we're going to try to make some of this available for people that, that don't have the funds to pay for it. But the, the gap is so wide and the systemic problems are so great. I sort of think that, that, that he may be right, that, that this is going to make it worse, not better. Um, I mean, it's it's the have the haves of the legal world will have greater tools. They have not, so still have none. So at best, they don't get hurt. At worst, they get they're in a worse position than they they ever were. I mean, you know, the legal aid of the world can't get enough funding to hire enough lawyers to even serve the basic needs that there are now. Are we going to, as a society, give them more funds to buy some of these generative AI models so they can do their work faster? And better, we ought to, but we don't even give them enough money to hire people now. When people are yeah. incarcerated at greater rates than ever, so I, I don't think we have the will as a society to to go that route. So yeah, hopefully we can maybe, get, maybe hopefully maybe we can, some. To, go ahead, John. I'm sorry. Oh, hopefully we can give this technology to Browder and like do not pay could do something with it. I don't know. That, yeah, like unfortunately, said, everyone muted. Point. So, but, but <laughs> it's a great propensity to make things worse, not better. 
the cost of of technology has always gone down. So, I mean, we're projecting from current costs today, and I think we have every reason to expect that it will be easier. And and part of the access to justice problem is in the courts itself. It's the backlogs. It's a, there are lots of ways that perhaps it could at least address in the shorter term, the problems of the courts and the bandwidth of the courts to to deal with all, you know, the overwhelming need of 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 people who are underrepresented. So I I I I don't want to totally write it off as having no. There are no opportunities for anything to improve. Right, and it's a I mean, it's an interesting counterpoint that so there was a big talk of access to justice and generative AI at Codex this year. And everyone was saying, like, looking at the potential of it, which there is huge potential, but it was Jillian Hadfeld that was making the counterpoint also of just like, yes, it does, but we need to make sure that these tools don't only land in the hands of corporations. Because that, if they do, if they're only used, again, like you were saying, by the rich corporations to get richer, and we don't give them to actually use them to increase access to justice, it will deepen the divide. So there's choices to be made and whether or not it helps. I mean, I don't think anything erases the access to justice problem overnight, but it has this potential, but there has to be a lot of thought into it. It's not just a magic a magic wand for it. I, and I think that, I mean, this has been, obviously this has been a problem with technology, legal technology all along. I mean, it, I, I, I've, I've talked before on, on this show about the, the, the issue that investment dollars go into tech neck tech that's going to be sold to big corporations and big law firms because that's where the money is and you go where the money is uh and there's been a lot less investment in uh, justice tech or in, in tech for uh access to justice but at the same time it seems like it seems like what this new breed of ai does do is uh, perhaps make it easier uh and less expensive to develop some of the tools that can be pointed at the, the justice community, the, the the sort of the access to justice community, uh, and I maybe it you know ultimately while while you know full use of GPT four and API and everything else is very expensive, but uh, I, I think that this technology offers the promise of uh, lowering the cost of entry to develop tools that can be really effective in serving serving consumers around legal issues. Um, so, I mean, it, I, I mean, I think the essay was really good in Reuters, but I feel like it, it kind of misses that point. I think that's an important one. And you know, some of it will come from the companies your, agreeing to your, have, let their tools be used, too. I mean, I just did a little passion project three-part series on, because I got three different stories in at the same time about different legal tech companies having their tech used by various innocence projects and how that has panned out. And one of them is, you know, Clio has a new podcast. Uh, Relativity Justice for Change is doing it, and also Case Text Co-Counsel with the GPT-4 with the uh, California Innocence Project. So yeah, again, those are isolated incidents, but a lot of it is going to have to come again from the people who have the money being willing to give it and let it be used, and it's going to be incremental. But I also, and I mean, if you were if you were able to, you know, if we if we modified our our unauthorized practice of law rules so you could have paraprofessionals that do more things like like Alaska has done and some other states, then this becomes a very valuable tool. But if we're not willing to do that, you still you still have to go see a lawyer. Now, granted, you know if you're you know you pulled over for a DUI, you can ask Chat GTP, "What do I do now?" And it'll say, well, contact your bar association, get a lawyer. Okay, well, that's a big help, right? <laughs> Thank you very much, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So a uh, couple of other stories we had this week. Um, uh, Gene, you, you wrote about something um, which you, you talked about the fact that when you talk to this, talk to people about this, they've never heard of it. I have to say, I've never heard of it. <laughs> uh, the Lost Art of the Business Review. What, what's that about? Well, that's, well, years ago, back in the old days, when you bought, when you spent a lot of money with a company, mid-year in the contract, maybe halfway through the contract, or period, you could agree with it up front. They would come and they would give you data and say, here's how it's performing. Here's how it's being adopted. They, they would come you had a rep that could come and produce these reports and engage with you on, do we need to change training? How do we, you know, and also do we need to add products? Can we, should we tweak what we, the mix of products? So what I have found is that as companies have gotten larger, they have less and less bandwidth to even support the, the customer. And I think a lot of it has to do with the absolute gutting of back offices. So after I um, explain to my reps what the what the business review is, like you look at how much money is the is uh, how much money are we spending with you? How many products do we buy from you? How how has the, how has our usage trended over the past five years? You know, you, you know, I I actually did a checklist. I did a whole litany of issues that the vendor should come forth and produce data on. So after I explain it to the reps, usually they'll they'll say to me. Oh well, I have to go and act, ask my back office, and then there's nobody in the back office that can give them the data about the usage or the users. So it's just been for me a really shocking decline, which I think is tied to the overall decline in customer support. You know, where everyone wants to be more like Amazon. Everyone wants to automate everything having to do with customer service, and you know. When companies are spending millions of dollars on products, I, I don't think it's too much to ask to have a vendor come forward and do an analysis on a regular basis. And let's look at how the how the how the contract is performing. Let's look at our ROI. So that that was what my post was about. Customer service. Yeah, the decline, the death. Don't get me started. See it every place. <laughs> I have a few people agreed with me. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, CJ. <laughs> um, interesting. Um, and uh, what else do we have here? They had, uh, well, we had the, well, I'll, I'll just mention the, the, the story I, I wrote this week about the, the uh, American Association of Law Libraries uh, came out with their uh, uh, sort of sort of a state of the industry state of the profession report they've done this is the third time they've done that um and uh it's uh you know it's a it's a very comprehensive uh survey uh of of the role of law librarians in different sectors in in the private corporate sector in government sector and in academic sector uh and they're actually it's actually three different surveys kind of uh mashed up in, into one report because they do separate surveys for each of those three uh, sectors with, with different questions uh, but i think the thing that uh always jumps out at me about this and and i mean and maybe it's it started maybe it's become obvious at this point but it, it hasn't always been obvious is of the of the critical role that law librarians 
play in uh, technology um, selection and use and deployment and adoption uh, at wherever they work. Uh, and maybe particularly in private firms, and I mean, Gene, you would know this better than anybody here, but they, they, you know, they're, they're very much involved in, in vetting technology, in, in uh, setting up contracts around technology, and not just legal research technology or something like that, which I think what a lot of people think, but, but uh, really uh, across the board uh, in, a, in a lot of uh, settings. So, I mean, it's something I've written about before. Uh, it's something uh, I, I think is notable. It's one of the reasons I find the uh, AAWL conference so good, which is, by the way, coming up in June and in, a, in, a, in a not too July. far down the road. July. July. Yeah, I'm July. sorry, July. But uh, in, in Boston, so uh, I won't have to drive far, which is a good thing. Um, so I don't know. It's, well, it's, uh, it's worth it. Yeah. I'll add my two cents to that. I mean, I, because I think almost law libraries were the place where the internet came into law firms. I mean, almost everybody I know was the first person to, to find a phone line and connect it to, to the internet. And that's before the World Wide Web. The, another interesting factoid is that, because I, I used to hear about this, I don't want to tell you when I was getting my MLS, but it was a long time ago. And they kept talking about networks. And the original, one of the original networks was OCLC, which started in Ohio in 1967, which was to share cataloging data among universities. But the other interesting factoid is that is the exact same year and the exact same state that OVAR started, which was the predecessor to Lexis. So those, I don't know what was in the water in Ohio, but a lot of technology innovation happened in 1967 in, in Ohio, which I mean, is- the, the lake yeah. literally caught on fire, so. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't know. Yeah. Now, the other thing I was gonna say is that, you know, unfortunately, you know, I think one of the other questions they ask is about what skills do people need in the future? And that's when I write about, that's where I'm gonna focus because People don't, you know, yes, librarians have always been involved in taxonomy and a lot of the things that are driving knowledge management today. I mean, they they were the original catalogers, you know, so, um, but I think today, you know, people are coming out of school with a lot more technical skill than was being taught, you know, when I went to school. So I think people are coming out of graduate programs with more with data science backgrounds and I think we are going to see the profession transform dramatically over the next decade. Well, I, I think it's that's a really interesting point about the law librarians because it sort of brought me back to when I first started blogging and <clears throat> I just had this small blog and I was just starting to connect with people in the legal tech space. And the first organizations to ask me to speak were the local law librarian association and one in Toronto. Like it was sort of like in my little geographic region, they were some of the ones that took notice of what I was writing and read it before anybody else. And so it's it's interesting that you said that. And they always sort of have been on the cutting edge. They're just kind of quiet about it. I think that's part of what it is. You know, they aren't, um, they write a lot, but you know, they're, <clears throat> I feel like sometimes it's in the background that they absolutely don't get the credit that they deserve. So that's a good point. Yeah. And, and yeah. That, their conference really, it really is one of my favorites because you, you know, you, you kind of go there and you talk to the people that are actually using the products and what they think about it and what they're interested in and what their people that work for are interested in. It's just a great way to get information. So hopefully I'll hopefully I'll get invited to go this year. 
<laughs> I like the I think, rest of I think you have to ask. <laughs> no. <laughs> they've already got the, uh, I, actually, I've asked, but uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm registered yet, but I plan to be there. Oh, I am. <laughs> You're registered already? Yeah. But yeah. yes, we had to ask. I think yeah. I registered. I mean, no, I, I think I registered. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, what episode of uh, Legal Tech Week would be complete without at least one Elon Musk story? Uh, and uh, for that, we turn to Joe Patrice. Yeah, uh, this is only tangentially. Elon's the hook. Uh, it's a deeper story. Anyway, Elon Musk, uh, his attorneys, he was asked to testify in a case uh, about some you know, the Tesla crash. He had made some public comments that are on video about how the safety features work. Uh, understandably, the victim's family feel like him publicly saying this is relevant to the question of whether or not people have bought this uh, this car that crashed into the side of the road. His lawyer sent a letter saying, well, Mr. Musk, being so important, is a constant victim of deep fakes. So we can't testify about any of these video clips. Um, this is obviously stupid because uh, it doesn't answer the question, were these deep fakes? It was just kind of like a blanket claim, like I could have had a deep fake, so I refuse to show up. Uh, and the right answer is you have to show up, say it's a deep fake and let the forensic uh, experts work out whether or not it was. But uh, that aside as a hook, what it got me thinking about is the deep fake conversation. And one, on a lesser level, are there going to be litigants who try this bad faith argument that he's trying? But two, more importantly, how ready are we for that forensics question of breaking apart a video to determine what is and is not what the person said? When a good faith, well, not good faith necessarily, but, but when somebody who's not as dumb as Elon and his lawyers shows up for their deposition and says, no, I didn't make the following statements and puts the other side on the spot to prove that this is not a, a faked video, what do they do? Also, is that really the way which the burdens are supposed to flip? Should it be on the witness to prove this was a deep fake? Uh, I, these are all questions that I'm not altogether sure people are ready for. I think we'll just have AI analyze it. The, the there AI, we go. AI can tell us if the other AI faked it and we'll be in this crazy little- Send it to Lexus, see if they can answer it. <laughs> right, I don't know. I mean, during well, the show, just, we- we're just to pose Trump and he'll just say, yeah, sure. I said, grab her pussy. What the heck? Does well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, look, that was, that was fantastic. Uh, the, the strategy of go ahead and admit it is, you know, it, it, it rarely works, but let's see how it goes for him. Uh, but, but yeah, no, I, I do think this is going to be more of an issue and potentially here, I'll, I'll be controversial, potentially a faster moving issue than even this GPT taking over law firm stuff. Because I think these deep fakes, especially in just audio, uh, video is pretty good too, but really on just audio, uh, have gotten so, so uh, sophisticated. What are we going to do, you know? Yeah, I've, I've been worried about this for, for a while because I think that I mean, the judges, for the most part, are not prepared to do this analysis. And I mean, how are you going to make these determinations? 
know, the standard at all has always been, you know, is this thing what it purports to be? How do you decide mm-hmm. that with some of the stuff? I mean, some of it is so good. There was an article the other day about, I don't know, a woman got a phone call and it, it sounded like her son pleading for help, that he was someplace or in jail or an accident. And it was all fake. Yeah. And so I was yeah. like, good Lord, you know, I was, <laughs> um, somebody in the chat has asked somebody in the chat has asked if we're all real <laughs> only nikki is the nikki is the only real one here what are you talking about that's her avatar <laughs> she lives in a simulation <laughs> her avatar well right, let's see if nikki's real really... nikki pull one of those books off the shelf and read it to us oh <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know if the books are real they're not real. They're not real. I don't color code my books that way. I don't have a patient. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, let's see. So we've got uh, a good clock coming. Anybody going to clock? Anybody here going to clock? The clock is ticking. I am. Clock. Stephanie's going. Joe, you're going? No, you're not going. You're good. I can. No, I. Uh, you got. I will be busy. I will be busy you're, next week. You will be watching the clock. Yes. Well, no, we'll be done. There's like that, that the clock founder, the original clock founder has now launched a new conference for later this year. Uh, yeah. Yet, yet another conference for us all to worry about whether to go to or not. Also in Vegas. <laughs> also in Vegas, of course. Right. Yeah. Dan O'Day is going. A working clock works in Vegas twice a year. I don't know. There's something, yeah. there's some kind of a yeah. clock thing there. Yeah, my my right. new test on going to conferences is whether they offer us food or not, which I'm happy to say that many will. Well, many so will no conferences. Ilta, Ilta has now passed the smell test then for you. <laughs> Ilta, Ilta has now uh, told us that we're going to get food. We as members of the media will be able to eat during the conference. Oh, really? I didn't see that. I did see that I got my invitation. So I will. Uh, that will be my uh, next conference, I think. Yeah. They didn't uh, say yeah. there's coffee you might in the want... restroom, but they did say we can go to the dinners and stuff. Maybe you should read your invitation carefully, Joe. Sometimes it, some of us get invited to things that... <laughs> this fine, I think, is... Yeah, yeah this <laughs> one looks good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, um, we will... Uh, I think that probably does it for this week. And... Uh, We're not going to talk next... about the robot dog with ChatGPT? I no. know. What about Nikki's talking what? dogs? What about the robot oh, all dog? All right, all right. You got you got a minute. I got I got I got five minutes. I got to be off the top of the hour. So be super fast. Be super fast. So, um, not to the, mention the founder of uh, of AI uh, talking about how he we yeah. didn't get to that either. But yeah, in, in a very uh, I don't know uh, pre Battlestar Galactica moment. If anyone watched Caprica, where they uploaded the consciousness into the robot, and that started the whole robot uprising. Somebody had the brilliant idea to upload ChatGPT into one of the uh, Boston Dynamics robot dogs. So I feel like the end is here. Like the end is nigh. It's kind of over for all of us. The robot dogs are going to gain sentience and take over the world. And they're terrifying. I don't know if y'all have watched the videos of them lately. Them and the actual robots. The robots are so adept and agile now. So if you haven't watched like Battlestar Galactica or Caprica, which is the series that predates it, I think y'all should watch that this weekend, both of them, and just become as fearful as I am about this whole thing. And I hope we're in a simulation. Yeah. I'll be driving right by Boston that. Dynamics in about an hour and a half, so uh, I will be careful as I pass the building. <laughs> Any comment on robot dogs? No. 
But well, no, my, my other end is my thing was that, you know, the godfather of AI from Google stepped down basically saying he regrets his life work. So, huh, you know, yeah, I mean, regrets it all the way to the bank. But, except, you know. except he didn't. Except he doesn't, because as soon as as soon as somebody point blank asked him in an interview, what about Google? He was like, oh, what Google's doing is great. Uh, like, it, it's just the same uh, these all these AI guys complaining about the doom and gloom, except for their own company that they have money in. It's just so tedious. Laura, Laura Keeler gets the award here. Her cousin was in a commercial with the Boston Dynamics robot dogs. How great is that? Uh, all right, all right. Well, uh, next week uh, we can do. Do we uh, next week we won't have Joe maybe because Joe is going to be a new parent. Uh, very exciting. Do we know? Do you yeah. know? Boy, girl stuff. Girl, uh, girl. She will be. Uh, she'll come on Thursday at this rate. So, uh, so whether or not I'm here on Friday is iffy. Uh, I would say no, but there's, you know, post COVID, there's a lot of uh, visitation rules at the hospital and stuff. So I actually might have to leave for an hour. At which point, I would be able to join. There you go. All right. Yeah. Well, congratulations, and uh, we'll see you. Whoever does make it here next Friday, uh, we'll see you uh, then. And uh, thanks to everybody uh, for listening and watching and for the always interesting chat uh, in this thing. So appreciate it. See you next week. Bye, everyone.